Uh, this is Dave Broadbeck sitting here in my, what I euphemistically call a podcasting studio, but it's actually the uh, room I do podcasts in. It's not really a studio. It's my daughter's old bedroom. That is neither here nor there. Uh, the following lecture is from psychology 3926 slash 4926. Special topics in cognitive psychology, animal cognition. Hope you enjoy it. Yeah, we're talking about foraging today. Um, this, uh, I know we have, we have, whoops, what am I doing? Conclusion of a different lecture, wrong course. You dummy. Oh, no, that's the conclusion of the foraging lecture. I just had it in the wrong slide. Um, we have two biologists in here. How many more? Anybody else? You guys, who's, who's biology? Who's, who's taking a lot of biology? Okay, yeah, the biology students. And Chris, okay, as well. Okay, so, have you taken behavioral ecology? No? You have? Yeah. Okay, so you know about forage. Are you yeah, about forage? Yeah, we did the um, For the most part, this is one of those areas that... The nice thing about this stuff is it's biology and... You know, I talk about synthetic approach to animal cognition. This really shows no more because this is the biology and psychology coming together to form one super discipline. Um, so it's been looked at for a long from a functional angle, right? We're going to look at this, we'll look somewhat at mechanism, but from a functional angle, which is what biologists tend to be a little more interested in. Um, so looking at things like optimality models. And we'll talk a lot about optimality models. An optimality model is just a model that says what should, how should an animal behave? This is how does an animal behave? It says, how should they behave to maximize fitness? Okay? So it's not saying animals behave this way. It's saying, how should they behave? And then it makes guesses to how should they behave, and then you go look and see if they behave that way in the wild. Right? But that's all done completely from a functional point of view. Okay? Um, for the psychologists, the interesting questions, well, the functional stuff's very interesting. Um, you look at this behavior that is in a model, and you say, okay, well, how would an animal mechanistically accomplish this? So what cognitive mechanisms would we expect to have evolved for animal to forage optimally? Right, so that's the kind of question you can ask. And in fact, Sarah Shuttleworth, author of our book, um, is one of the world's foremost experts at doing that kind of thing. That's sort of where... She and a few other people, uh, Alex Kaselnik, John Krebs, uh, Nick Davies, uh, Dave Sherry to a point, just a few other people, Al Camel. Yeah. So, but half those people I mentioned were biologists and half of them were psychologists by training. So, and there was a heavy, heavy influence of the University of Oxford and University of Toronto. Like that's, I don't know why it worked that way, it just did. So, optimality models, first we have to talk a little bit about them. So the first thing is, you have to look at a decision the animal's gonna make in the wild. Now this could also, this can be about animal X, just some theoretical animal that doesn't exist, or you can actually talk about a specific animal. Okay? So some of the stuff we'll talk about today is very general, and some of the stuff specific to a single species or a single type of 
foraging situation. So a decision like when should, where should an animal feed? How long should it stay? In, in where the place where it's eating. I don't know why that doesn't have a question mark. Because those first two should have question marks. But then the third one does. What food should it eat? So that's an interesting evolutionary question, right? Because it can be an evolutionary question. Over time, should I eat, should I be a carnivore or a herbivore? That's a question. Or it could be, should I eat this or that in, in here and now? So these can be long-term questions looked at evolutionarily, then we're not going to look at mechanisms so much. Or they can be within a moment-to-moment in an animal's daily life. As I say here, it can be a choice. I got choice quotes there because it's not like the same way we make choices. Right? They don't get lost in thought. I wonder. I don't think they do anyway. So decide to leave an area, decide to evolve a means to detoxify a plant, decide how long your chewing teeth should be. Again, that's a decision. It's an evolutionary decision. It's not, that's not cognitive whatsoever. Obviously, that's just an evolutionary quote decision. So detoxifying a plant, you think about monarch butterflies eat milkweed. Right? Milkweed's poisonous to almost anything that eats it, except the monarch butterflies who find it delicious. Right? And it's worked out great for monarch butterflies because they eat milkweed, which makes them poisonous. <laughs> and they're also brightly colored and ornamented, which means they're, they can now teach a lesson to other animals that are going to eat them. Oh, you got sick when you ate my, my, uh, you know, my cousin. So you're not going to eat me. Aposematism, right? Whoops, let's go back. What happened there? Let me go ahead. Now, now see, this is the thing. Okay. Decision. Okay. So I didn't screw up. So you have to make a substitute the currency. And the currency is some fitness-related variable. In the end, you really want it always to be fitness, but you can't always find a fitness related, you can't always find direct measures of fitness. So it's not always going to be how many young I have that survive into the next generation and produce offspring. It could be that. Right? That's fine, that's a perfectly good, but you can't always get that, that measure. And of course, even if you have that, a better measure is how many of their young that you had of those young that you had passed their genes on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can, it can get ridiculous. Point is, you can look at things that clearly would correlate highly with fitness, like the ma to maximize the energy you gain, right? or minimize your travel time, or the probability of survival until nightfall. Uh, number of calories per hour. That's it, that's energy gain. I mean, I've often thought about when you look at minimizing travel time and maximizing calories, trick-or-treating is the ultimate optimal foraging problem. Because think about this when you were a kid. You would actually do it this way, right? You'd think, okay, who's got the good candy? What street has the good candy? Where do the rich people live? They give out the good candy. And then avoid the dentist's house who just hands out toothbrushes and apples because he's a killjoy. And we have to make sure we want to hit the, these streets. So you really are actually maximizing, you're minimizing travel time. You always try to do that. And you're maximizing energy in your calories per hour. It really is an optimal foraging problem. 
And it's funny because you do it implicitly when you're a kid, when you're little. Then when you're a little older, you get pretty systematic about it. And you always say the same thing every Halloween, right? I'm going to fill up a whole pillowcase. And no one, that's impossible. It'd be like 3,000 houses. No one can fill up a whole pillowcase for a kid. I know a guy who did. No, you don't. You really don't. There's no way. That's so much candy. When you come home and you have to dump your candy out so your parents can check for poison, you know what they're doing. Eventually, you guys will be parents. What you do is you just take the good candy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's homemade fudge. I'm sorry. That might be deadly. I'll take that. I, I remember my dad doing that all the time. Because so, when I was a kid, you know, early 70s, there were was, was still people like, making fudge and popcorn balls. He's like real stuff. And my dad would go, you can't have that, David. It could kill you. <laughs> While he's smoking a cigarette. Um, okay. Now, you make assumptions that there are constraints on the model. Um, these constraints, they're fixed properties of the animal, fixed properties of the environment. So how much energy can you actually get out of a food item? So how efficient is your, is your digestive system? That's, that's a constraint. Right? What's the encounter rate of food? You have to build that in to the model, right? Like, how often are they going to run? You might have to. How often are they going to run into food? So the encounter rate might be something like sometimes animals live in what are called patchy environments. So that say most, but a lot of animals forage in patchy environments. So there's a bunch of food here, and there's a lot of places where there's no food, and there's a bunch of food here. Place there's no food. What's the rate of return here versus over there? Um, let's say it's nectar. Does it replenish? Right? And that's something you can actually just look up, even if you don't know anything about nectar making plants. You go ask the guy down the, down the, down the, down the hall who does work with plants, and you say, How often does that happen? And they tell you every 24 hours is probably reasonable. So you build into the model, they can't come back to that place for 24 hours. Right? And then you realize at that point, you say, well, Brandon, thank you. Your work is done. I don't need to know anything else about plants because they suck. They're all in fun. Um, how often are you going to run into, how often are you going to be the, the, the currency of someone else's foraging model? Right? So there's a possibility, because when you're foraging, you are doing a shitty job of looking out for predators. Because when you're doing one thing, you animals tend to do one thing or another. So people like that say, oh, we're, we're, we are animals after all. It makes sense to do something completely. Right? If you're looking out for, for, for predators and looking for food, you're going to do a half-assed job of both. So what animals tend to do is they tend to either just look for food or just look out for predators. Okay. So when they're looking for food, they don't tend to be worrying too much about predators. Because they forage, again, this is the whole system. You forage at, let's say you're a, a nocturnal animal, so you don't worry about, so you go out at night, so you have to worry so much about certain predators, except. So you have to worry about other things in the environment that could affect you. So your goal with this stuff is to determine what decision, given these constraints, maximizes your currency. So you can see here that this is going to be a mathematical problem. These models are going to be quantitative. They're going to make literal mathematical predictions. Now, 
for those of you that have played a little bit with math, you know, or remember your high school math, taking a system of equations and finding minima and maxima is actually a trivially easy thing to do. You may not have done it in a while, and don't worry, we're not going to have to do it either. But it's not hard to do. Like, you remember doing that, right? Like, what's the minimum of this uh, equation? What's the maximum? Right? That was the thing. And while you probably don't remember how to do it, if I sat here and showed you how to do it, you'd go, ah, oh, yeah. Right? So it's not hard mathematically. There is math here. You can see that, in fact, and we're talking about rates of change and stuff, there's going to be calculus. Not today. We'll go, you know, a little. It'll, it'll be implicit calculus. Who's taking calculus? Who's taking it? Who's, who has taken it in their lives? Okay, so some of you haven't? Poor bastards. Um, no, it makes you a better person. <laughs> no, math? No, seriously. I mean, I, everything makes you a better person. With the, I was going to say something bad inside of that, too. Um, <laughs> I edited that trash in another discipline there. No, um, that, math, math, calculus is math that convinces you that the universe is beautiful on its own. It's a really neat thing. I already think that. Yeah, but you get even more respect for it. It's, it's beautiful. What are you saying? What's that? Oh, that's also true. Sure. But the idea of, like, but the idea that you just take the exponent and multiply times the coefficient and you get the slope of the curve, that's just weird and beautiful. Right? It's cool. It's, it was the, probably the first time, well, I, I guess when did I learn calculus? Grade 13. It's just all in. Uh, and I remember just looking at How does that work? That's crazy. But it works. It's cool. So it'll be some sort of implicit. So we're going to make precise, testable predictions. Modeling does that. That's the, one of the fun things about modeling. The thing is, if your model's shitty, it's going to make lousy predictions or it's going to make imprecise predictions, and that's what you don't want. So, in fact, you can, you can tell if a model's going to be pretty good very quickly, it seems to me. And the predictions grow out of the way the world works. I remember taking a, a class on, just what was it? I don't know, some undergrad class I took. Uh, now it's going to bother me until I figure it out. Biological basis of behavior, we call it. And one of the things that we did in one of our exams was we were given this fake ecosystem and what all the constraints were. Some of them didn't matter. We were told, build a model to predict something. It was not hard. It's actually not hard to do if you've done it a little bit, a little bit of practice. Because like I'm saying, I was doing that as an undergrad. It wasn't at the same level as this class. So it wasn't hard. This is not horribly hard to do. It's neat, though. So, so people often say that evolutionary theory doesn't have, isn't testable. I, it drives me just, I want to strangle people who say things like, well, it's not testable. Well, you haven't been paying attention. But if I can come up with a mathematical prediction, and it's based on evolutionary theory, that is prediction. Uh, and you're stupid. So, I've literally heard people say this that are so smart, by the way. Evolutionary theory isn't falsifiable. I just get angry, but then I don't say anything because what's it going to do? I just quietly seethe to myself. 
And then I wait for classes that I teach and I tell them. Okay, Bolofsky's done a lot of cool work. Uh, what Bolofsky does is work with different species, um, <coughs> tends to do stuff predicting just specific, uh, specific animal species uh, and how they're going to behave. So there's a lot of neat stuff that she's done. I'm pretty sure Bolofsky's a sheep. I'm not mistaken. Um, how much aquatic vegetarian should a moose eat? Because moose eat both aquatic and terrestrial vegetation. Right? So, the constraints are the amount of, uh, there's a sodium constraint. They need a certain amount of sodium in their diet. And another constraint is their rumen, where their gut is only so big. Like, see, it, it's a very obvious physical constraint. What was the first? Uh, the first one is the sodium. They have to have, they need a certain amount of sodium, and they can only get sodium out of aquatic plants. Yeah, they can only get sodium out of aquatic plants. You can't get it, there isn't enough, there's, there's negligible sodium in terrestrial plants that moose eat. So much so that with this model you can say there's none. And then, the thing is, you want to eat, for caloric density, think about this, you want to eat terrestrial plants because um, aquatic plants are really wet and you're eating a lot of water. And the other constraint is the size of your rumen, your gut, right? Because they're, they're, they're uh, they, 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 the food ferments inside them. They ruminates. That's where that term comes from. So, when you take a look at terrestrial plants and aquatic plants, they must eat at least this much up to here, aquatic plants. Because that's the sodium constraint. They eat less than that. Um, that's, the optimal, that, that's the minimum amount to, to, to allow like, the metabolism to happen, okay? This is an energy constraint. They need to get energy from food. This is just so they don't end up losing weight. And here's the rumen constraint. Your gut can only hold so much. And what should they do is they should, it should be somewhere in then this triangle. And in fact, it turns out that they where the star is, that's the proportion of aquatic to terrestrial plants that they eat. So what they're doing is they're eating the smallest amount of terrestrial plants they can, right? And the largest amount of terrestrial plants because they have they're, they're, more, they're more caloric density. So you make the prediction, go and watch some moose and see what they do. Now, one could ask a question here, how are the moose doing this? How are they calculating how much? Uh, exactly. Now, I don't know their count. Let's not think that they're doing the math. Because they, they almost certainly aren't. How are they deciding? Yeah, how are they making this decision? Okay. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Anybody have any thoughts? What's a mechanistic thing? Please. Well, couldn't it be similar to, to how when your body needs something, it's like a craving? Yeah. That's a guess. They could crave aquatic plants. Yeah, that's a guess. And I mean, there are specific hungers that happen in, um, there's data on, for example, uh, rats that are potassium deprived. So you just take rats and put them on an exceedingly low potassium diet. You can actually put them on a no potassium diet. It could be done. 
for like 10 days. And then you give them a choice between two novel foods, so two foods they've never eaten before, and one has potassium in it, and one doesn't, they prefer the one that has potassium. And they'll go back and eat it again. They can get a flavor preference for it. Right. So what about availability? So like, if they have enough opportunity, do they take in more than they may need? And then that's sort of, like, I don't know no, on average they will not. On average they will have this proportion, about four-fifths to one, four-fifths terrestrial to one-fifth aquatic. Yeah, because the, the bodies of water would freeze over. Oh yeah, eventually it freezes over. Yeah, exactly. Huge period. Yeah. So I mean, this is during the time when, uh, yeah, yeah, because it does change over time. Because they have to be in uh, mating, uh, this, is, this is in the spring. They have to be like mating, uh, what sort of looking for condition. Yeah. So it's probably a craving, a specific hunger of some sort. Right? It's hard to know, but that's probably what it is. But that's kind of neat stuff. I find this a little less interesting than stuff that's a lot, and it's funny because this is actually about a real animal. Um, and I don't tend to think about theoretical animals that too much, but I like the stuff that's on. It's a little more general, personally. And that starts with something called the marginal value theorem. This is from Charnov in 1976. It's pretty old. <clears throat> Apparently thought up in a beer-fueled a beer night in the story I've been told. This is the idea. This is about, this is more generally about uh, all animals. This says, okay, if profitability of a food item equals the energy from the food item divided by its handling time, Handling time, what is handling time? It's just, um, think of it this way, how long it takes to digest it, or to, or to, to get it, to digest it, okay? That's handling time. So I like to think of something like a peanut. It doesn't have much handling time in a shot compared to, let's stick with nuts, a walnut, where you need it. A nutcracker, or if not, you need two walnuts to crack together. So, is it fair to say it's effort? It's no, because it's just the amount of time it takes. We're going to measure that in seconds. Time. Yeah, so it's just handling time. We can also include time, we can put travel time in there too. So, if we are thinking about a patchy environment, the amount of time it took you to get there since you last ate. You might want to throw in there. Sometimes people do. Other times they just have travel time as a separate entry. It's, it's weird going out to dinner with people that do this kind of work because they talk about travel, uh, about handling time of, of their meal. <laughs> you know, uh, I was at a conference a few couple years ago, and, and, and someone said, uh, "Order crab," and one guy said, "The handling time is too great. I, I can't eat crab." Dude, just can't you not do this for like 10 minutes? <laughs> it's crab, man. We're in Florida. They have fresh crab. The handling time's too great. To be fair, though, when you eat crab, it goes Oh, it's, it's a mess. Oh, there's no doubt about that. But just say that then. I don't want to look like a mess and have to wear a bib in front of my colleagues. Because that's appropriate. Yeah, that seems far more reasonable. I have a picture of... Um... <laughs> uh, then wouldn't you guys wouldn't find it funny. Anyway. Of a rather eminent researcher in a in a crab bib. 
but he didn't take it off because he had a lot to drink and he went back to the conference at the poster session. He's walking around with a crab bib. It's very funny. But it's just strange, is all. I looked over and said, Tony, still have your crab bib on. He said, I know. Okay. Cool. Long as you know, dude. All right. So if an animal should, should leave a pet food patch when the profitability of the current patch equals the probability of all patches divided by the number of patches, or we want to call that P bar, because it's just an average. So look at that. The pro profitability of the current patch. So it's in the, it's an Apache environment. So there's a bunch of food here. Then there's a bunch of like barren wasteland. And then there's food over here, and a barren wasteland. And food over here. Okay. So the profitability of the current patch has to, equals the profitability of all patches divided by the number of patches. That's when it should leave the current patch. Does that make sense? Why, did you understand why it should do this? I didn't say how, <laughs> but do you understand why? I can explain it again. Okay. You're in patch A, and you're getting food. At some point, though, it makes sense to leave patch A. Because if, you leave, if you're still in patch A, patch B, on average, any other given patch, has a higher profitability than the patch you're in. So you should leave that. And you should leave when the profitability of the patch you're in equals the profitability, the average profitability of all patches. What equal or not less? Uh, because as soon as you take one more bite, it's less. Right? So right when you hit it, that's when you should go. Because anything else you do, now you're, you're actually you're, you're better off somewhere else. You're better off somewhere else. Make sense? So that's the marginal value theory. So if you want to look at this mathematically, so ignore the travel time so far. This is the time you're going to spend in the patch. And the energy gain on each piece of food you eat, considering the patch is going to deplete, right? It's not an all-you-can-eat buffet they keep loading more chicken wings onto. It's, you like, like nectar-feeding uh, birds, and they're going into a patch of flowers, and once you, the first flower, you get lots of food. The next one, you get less and less and less because you're starting to empty out all the, the, the nectar in that patch. And eventually, it levels out. So you're going to spend, this is how time you spend in the patch, this is your travel time to it. So you can actually factor it in as well, the travel time. So if you take the first derivative, say I told you to use some calculus, you take the first derivative of this function, and then you can find so you can find out what then you can find out what the slope of the curve is, and then when you find out what the maximum slope is, everything after that maximum is when you, the animal should start maybe making a decision to leave. Everything after the maximum rate of return 
is when it should start deciding to making a decision to leave. It should not think about leaving anywhere up till here. Once it hits the max, it's like, oh, oh, oh. But that's why I said that can't be the max. Wouldn't it be here? Because we have the curve fit to the origin where travel time is factored in. If we don't factor travel time in, it would be right away. They'd be always deciding, should I leave yet? Should I leave yet? When we factor travel time in and we fit a curve there, we force, um, fit a curve with an origin, with the travel time. What's the difference between the red and the blue line? Um, the blue line is when the animal leaves too early. Right? Because it it's still getting a good return, rate of return. Right? See, if you see what happens here when we make the travel time longer? It makes the time to leave changes. So that, that, what the animal is doing now is it's factoring in factory and travel time, which they tend to do unless they live in a very, whether the, the, the trips between patches are so short that it isn't really a patchy environment anymore. So you can see the calculus plays a big role in, in, in the, doing this modeling, but you don't have to know calculus to look at that and understand those curves. But it's nice to know some calculus. Do we have to have just a test? Oh, God, no. No, because all you have to know, know is what you want to do. Where does the animal want to take, where does it want to leave? Anything after here, probably. Anything after there. Right? Because at that point, the rate of return is going to be less. This assumes a, gen uh, a travel time. You probably use, for the modeling purposes, an average travel time. You wouldn't have to anymore. We used to always use average travel time between all patches because computer, uh, computers were very powerful. Now you can, use, you can set, set up all the possible scenarios of going from patch A to patch B, patch A to patch B. C, patch A to patch D, and you can sort of dynamically program it like that. You didn't used to do it that way. And frankly, I bet the animals don't either. I bet their nervous systems aren't doing anything like this. They're just using an average possible travel time because it's efficient and it, 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 it approximates any given trial of, of patch leaving quite nicely. So it's all about slopes of curves of different different points. So some assumptions here. The animal has to know P for every patch in its environment, doesn't it? Because if it's going to leave when P equals P bar, it has to know what, to, do, to calculate P bar, it actually has to know P everywhere. The animal has to know P and E for H for each patch. Well, it has to know E and H, and it can then divide. It can do long division and find out what P is. Now, actually, it doesn't say the, the, the model, an assumption of the model isn't the animal actually knows how to do division. Or even that it knows how to divide E by H. So you could just say it knows P. It maybe it directly knows P. I don't know. Okay, how do they do this? <laughs> so how do you think an animal could do this? Because, by the way, they do. Oppo forging theory, uh, marginal value theorem has stood the test of 40 years. People still talk about it. I bet in behavioral ecology, Ishtvan talks about the marginal value theorem. Because it's still a thing. 40 years on, it's stood the test of time. It can get more complicated than this, but not a whole lot more. Um, so it works. It predicts animal foraging behavior in taxing environments. 
So it's it seems like it's probably true. How the hell are animals doing this? Remember, this only describes their behavior. It doesn't say they actually are doing arithmetic or even math. It says this describes their behavior. But how could they be doing this? I mean, the first one is they're actually doing math. Does that seem likely to anyone here? No. Probably not, right? They're probably not doing, but their nervous system, you can make a nervous system that could do this, that could model it. It wouldn't be that complicated. As we talked the other day, counting, right? We talked about an accumulator doing counting. Those pigeons don't know they're counting and timing. But it's funny, they can count keep track of time. Oh. So they actually can do that. Division's not a huge step, probably. So maybe they can do that. How else could they do it? Can I ask a question? Of course. So are they learning these patterns from their plans or their others, or is this something they can oh, do naturally? How do they know that no P, for example? In other, for other uh, 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 patches? Yeah, like let's say you took an animal that forages to, yeah. and it never met any of its species and you put it in a, a patch like this. Yeah. Would they be able to do this? Well, they'd have to have learned stuff about their environment, sure. So they have to have learned the rate of return at different patches in their environment. But they could do it without the social leadership. Oh, sure, because not all animals are social. Most yeah. animals are solitary. Yeah. yeah. We're okay. weird. Yeah. You know, us and like lions. Dogs and anything that herds, but most animals aren't like us. Well, most mammals, at least. But they go through training periods with their parents. Not necessarily. Not necessarily, because this also applies. This works with the uh, animals that literally there's no parental care. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not doesn't have to be parents passing knowledge on to young. That's a possibility. Um, I have a question. Go ahead. So when you have a pouch that's profitable. Yes. And you have more than just you in the patch. Yes. How does that impact the profitability? Well, that's an excellent question. You have to be, the animal has to be able to factor that in. So that's going to be changing the rate of return in the patch if you've got a, a friend with you. Okay, so could it possibly be the size of the patch? Sure. Because I mean, most, most food sources, so even vegetarian. Think about this. If it's, if it's always distributed the same, a bigger one is better than a smaller one. Yeah. So that's and so you could use that in that what you just described is something called a rule of thumb. So a rule of thumb is a strategy. I guess maybe the word here is heuristic. <laughs> yeah, it's a heuristic, right? Yeah. A heuristic that allows you to approximate optimality. Okay? So it's a heuristic that allows you to approximate optimality. To, to approximate what? Optimality. Yeah, so what the animal can do is it, maybe the pigeon, when it's at foraging, or even when it's in foraging in a skinner box, and you are doing this with two pecking keys and calling them different food batches, which you can't do, maybe what it's doing is it's just responding to something, some other cue than the actual energy gain, the actual handling time. It's responding to something else that approximates that. So it could be a counter rate. Like, how, how, so not encounter rate, but I mean, the one for encounter rate can be something like, how long has it been since I ate? 
oh, it's been longer than x seconds. I will now leave. Because this place sucks. So one, a great one here is what's called giving up time. So animals that forage in patchy environments very often, they'll, they'll, they'll behave following the marginal value theorem. It's wonderful. It's like, how are they doing this? And it turns out very often what they're doing is they're paying attention to how long it's been since they ate in that patch. And if it's been long enough, they give up. They leave. Go somewhere else. Another quick question. So Please. I know we're talking about patches as if they're they're widely spread apart, but could patches be not necessarily widely spread apart, but just separations in a because I when I think of patches, like you said, you think of a very wide space or even a but could they be like almost like flower patches where you have the yeah. garden broken into pieces? Yeah. Uh, depending on this if if you gotta have, there has to be some travel time between the two. Yeah. That's the thing. See, so in fact the way you do this in a scare box, you would think how the hell would you study this in a lab? Is you, this is an overhead view. See the Skinner box, which would be about, that's about the size of Skinner box, probably. Uh, and then you would have one pecking key here, and one pecking key here. And they would have different, and then there's a food hopper uh, in the middle. There'll be one food hopper here, one food hopper here. So it would open up, and the bird can put its head in and get some, some grain, okay? And then between here, we have a wall. So that was travel time. So they peck here, and then they stop getting food, and then they walk all the way around and come back and go back here. That's one way to do it. The other way you can do it is you can build travel time. You can do, oh, now, once you smell food here, you have to peck this key for two minutes. We're going to call that travel time. So you, you can basically make the animal behave as if it's in the wild, but you can really carefully control it, right? So you can say, this is going to be like a patchy environment. That's a lot of that work, uh, Catherine Plowright uh, from the University of Ottawa now, but she was um, a Shuttleworth graduate student, did a lot of that work. Uh, as did Alex Casella at Oxford. It was an accent that no one can do an impression of because it's a mixture of an English accent and an Argentinian accent. And it's the strangest thing. And he's so smart, it's disturbing. All those Oxford zoology guys just. Then again, the last year, we were hanging out, and my friend Rob said to him, is that a new sweater? And he said, how do you know? It's like your Sherlock. He said, There's, you still have the price tag on the sweater. Alex, take the sweat, price tag off your sweater. He said, oh, I didn't bring any price tags. I didn't floor Already had sweaters in the floor. So they'll give, giving up time. Another one that's similar to this is what's called a run of bad luck, R-O-B-L. So let's say in a task like this, they have to be pecking at the key. And you peck at the key, and now and then you get food. It's, it's, it's like a, in fact, this is described as a two-armed bandit. It's like, a, it's like a, a slot machine. It's gambling. Because part of the gamble is, it's a behavioral gamble. Do you peck or do you leave? Right? Which is, a, I think, a clash song. <laughs> Somebody got the reference to should I stay or should I go? That's nice. So, um... They're going to pack, and sometimes food comes, but after a while, you can make it so there's what you call a run of bad luck, because you can program it this way. It's like no matter how much you pack, you get nothing. So instead of it being time, 
the animal's paying attention to here, because you can now experimentally manipulate these things. It's not the amount of time, so it's not giving up time. It's, I've behaved as if to get food 15 times and got nothing. I'm leaving. Right? And those are two separate rules of thumb that can both be used. That's the interesting thing here. They, they seem related. They really aren't. One's a behavioral thing. How many times have I tried to get food and not got it? And this is, how long have I been here? Right? So this is like, I've been standing here. I, I've been sitting here at my, at my table waiting. And I've already ordered. And the waitress hasn't brought my food yet. And it's been 45 minutes. So I'm leaving. I've done that, usually while yelling loudly on the way out. I guess my money's no good here. This is this. You sit down at a restaurant, and the waitress keeps walking by, and you keep doing this. Because you don't want to do this, because that makes the jerk. Don't do that. But you know you do the eye contact thing? Keep doing that. And they keep just walking by, and you go, what am I doing? And that's a run of bad luck. It's like, no, that's it. I'm out of here. Let's go, let's go somewhere else. That's food-getting behavior that isn't getting me any food. So they are, one, you can experimentally split these two things apart, and animals will use both of these things. One of the papers that looked at this was by Al Campbell, and he has one of the greatest cutesy titles ever of a optimal foraging paper. It's called Rules to Leave By. It's awful, isn't it? It's about patch leaving. So what's the psychologist to do in this case? The foraging models leave these precise, precise predictions about results, they work. But the nice thing about these things is they tend to work. Um, they can tell us, though, just about what an animal should do. The psychologist's task is to look at the mechanisms, because that's what we're, our training is. More and more, our training uh, also involves function. It also involves an evolutionary angle. Um, more and more psychologists are coming around to the idea that we're part of biology versus the life science of behavior as It's funny, saying that now is not a controversial thing. Saying that 20 years ago, people would look at me like I was some kind of freak. Seriously, 20 years ago, people were like, this is not life science. This isn't part of biology. We're separate. Shut up. Stop being such an idiot. Specialized cool biology. Just like other kinds of specialized cool biology. may have been a bit of an editorial, but just a bit. Take contemporary theory with me next term, and we'll talk about that a lot. So we are. Um, so cognitive behavioral ways that can help an animal reach optimality. Because we know they do it, it's how do they do it. One of the problems that, again, most people who study animal behavior, usually from the biological angle years ago, didn't care at all about mechanism. They didn't understand mechanism. And for, for the other mechanism they did understand, they were wrong about things. When we talk about Conrad Lorenz. It's not learning. It's like, no, that's, you just literally described learning. But it's not learning. No, it's not one kind of learning concept. Here's your Nobel Prize. Be quiet. <laughs> Very nice the way you discovered in printing. But um, so they would get the more of the training from the functional angle. Again, nowadays it's a little bit different. We sort of have compromised over the years. So we would look at the cognitive behaviors, looking at running a bad look, looking at giving up time, looking at things like how do you know where all the food patches are? That's a spatial memory problem. Right? 
That's one that's often ignored by people who study foraging. It's like, does any animal have to know where the food is to begin with? Mm -hmm. So all these things are important. So one of the things that happens a lot is people confuse cause and function. Aquaforging foraging theory is about function, and cognitive mechanisms are about cause. And I've seen both psychologists and biologists get very confused because they, thinking that they have competing explanations, and in fact, they're both one's cause, one's function. They're, they're, they don't compete, they, they complement each other. So it's easy to confuse the two. What you might want to do, which is kind of cool, is look at times when optimal foraging theory makes one set of predictions, and animal cognition kind of science, psychology, makes another set of predictions in the same task. That probably shouldn't ever happen, but it does. So Shuttleworth talks about that in a couple of theoretical papers, um, about this is something really cool, because why does this happen? Why should they make separate predictions? Right? And who's right? So they're not competing explanations. I want to just say that again. So saying that an animal leaves a patch because of a run of bad luck is not different than saying it's left a patch because the rate of return, or it's not competing with saying that it's leaving the patch because the rate of return is lower, equal than or lower to the rate of return in the rest of the environment. One's a way to do the other one. I remember when I first heard about forging theory, and I was working in a lab, and someone said, "This stuff's great. I wonder if it uh, it'll ever, you know, it, it's probably going to sort of supplant all this all the stuff on um, memory." And I remember thinking, "Okay, I'm just a kid. I don't know anything." Like when it first sort of hit psychology, which was into the uh, into the, it got in, in the early to mid '80s, really. It sort of hit big in biology, late 70s, early 80s. And then the psychologists got a hold of it and misunderstood it. Most of it. I, I, someone else said to me, but why do they don't think they don't talk at all about mechanism? I remember thinking, and you know, those of you who've worked in labs know about this, like sometimes your prof will say something and you'll start think, I think that's wrong. But I don't think I should say anything. Because I'm so I'm sitting there going, uh-huh. Thinking, but that's not, I don't think that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> Turned out I was right, which is nice, because I'm usually wrong. OK, here's a mechanism. Um, the matching law. Now, jeez. Oh, I don't know if the matching law is a mechanism. This may be a weak way to put this. But one of the things that animals do um, is that animals match response rates to reinforcement rates. So it may not be a mechanism. This is more a description of behavior. But it's the case that if we have two or more keys, pecking keys, okay, so if we have this one here is a FR10, and this is an FR50. So they have to peck this key 50 times to get some food, and this key only 10 times to get some food. Now, you and I, I think, what we think we do is we just peck the one that gets the FR10. Why would you ever peck the other one? 
I don't know. But you know what? It actually would. <laughs> and you will distribute, in this case, your behavior in that ratio, 5 to 1. You will behave, you will do 5 pecks here for every 1 peck here. And that's is replicated a zillion times. Why don't you just peck at the good one? Why would you ever peck at this other one? But for every five pecks here, you do one peck here. So you match your response rates to reinforcement rates. Because the reinforcement rate here is five, a five to one ratio, your response rate is going to be a five to one. You know, actually, it turns out that doing that, when we think about that, we wouldn't do it that way, but doing it that way maximizes your amount of food. Just responding only on the good one, you don't do as well as if you go five here, one here, five here, one here, five here, one here. You do better if you match your response rate to the reinforcement rate than you do by just sticking to the, good, the better key. Because then at some point you have both. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You, you, get, you get more food that way. It actually does maximize the amount of food you get. Cognitively, it literally makes no sense. I can sit here and I, I'm not going to go into it, but you, I can show you the math. It actually does work. But cognitively, you look at that and go, no, 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 that can't be. That's like when the, that's like you're saying, uh, that's like this. That's one of them illusions. That can't be real. No, actually, that works. This isn't real. That's, that's, that's an illusion. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> so, in fact, that allows an animal to be optimal. Animals are built to do that. And they somehow detect response rate, or sorry, reinforcement rate, and they match their response rate to it. How can we get them not to do this so much? This is where it gets cool, is you put a, big, you, you put a penalty on switching. Travel time. So as soon as they switch keys, it's like both keys go out. If you do something like that, like it gets all dark in the, in the, they don't switch so often. In other words, that's travel time. That's, you can consider that travel time. Or you make it literal travel time, as I said, you put a, uh, what do you call it, a barrier in the middle. Make them walk all the way into the scare box and all the way back. So they may be using this matching law, this ability that rats, pigeons, people have to do this. Right. Um, if you put a penalty on the switch rate, yeah. do they still like do they still pack the other one though? They will, but it becomes much less likely. Okay, so it's, it's yeah. decreased but not completely gone. Yeah, what you're doing is you're, you're increasing the travel time. If you think of it from an optimal foraging standpoint, you're increasing the travel time. When you increase the travel time, they aren't leaving the patch. Then. But does that not depend on time? Like how long you have? What this year? If you, yeah, if you only have time to, uh, if you only have ten seconds and you're not able to. Oh no, that's keys. FR, not FI. Hmm? Fixed ratio, number of number of responses. Yeah, I know, but yeah, if, yeah. if the animal only has like thirty seconds, and he's not able to do, to pack both keys at least ten and fifty times. Oh no, you, well, well, you could do that. Yeah, you could make it so you, they, they both turn out after a certain amount of time. I'm sure that's been done. I mean, then maybe it makes more sense to just pack one. Well, in that case, you probably would. 
Yeah. On the other hand, these experiments tend to be done where you put the bird in the, in the, in the, in the box and you just turn the lights on. Okay. And it just goes. <laughs> Yeah, if you have limited time, they're going to learn very quickly. In fact, in limited time, they're not going to ever have enough time to, to, to bet this 50 Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. So they'll never learn anything about this game. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, they'll pick both of them. This is the thing that happens when you put them in, this, in a task like this. They pick both of them equally, and then it eventually goes and it matches the, the reinforcement range over time. It doesn't take long either. Like, when I say it doesn't take long, it takes hours. They are pigeons. Like, they're still pigeons. They still are the things in the cage, and we have to uh, put them in there. I mean, we're smarter. They're probably doing this by encoding the time between reinforcers. That's probably about time. It probably comes down to a timing thing. I think a lot of things in. in, in uh, these kind of problems do cut do that time. But the cool thing is it actually leads to roughly optimal foraging. So something, and this is one of these cases where psychologists were doing this in the 50, 40, 40s, when's the magic walk around? Now I want to know. I think it's Hernstein. Yeah. Matching well. Matching well. Yeah, pretty vision, matching well. Blah, blah, blah. Just want the gear. I know what it is. Hernstein, 1961. Yeah, so it's early 60s. So people had, been, had found this a long time ago. Hernstein's a Skinner student. Um, yet, they were showing this. Uh, so this, this, was, this, this was happening. And then the people doing optimal foraging hadn't, they weren't talking about mechanisms because they didn't really care early on. But here's a mechanism. Right. Anyway, some conclusions. A couple anyway. Uh, first one is this, the study of foraging, animal foraging, is probably the first place where the sort of zoologists and the animal learning people came together to start talking about sort of to build the modern science of, of, compar of comparative cognition. Right? So the people that were studying this stuff in the early 80s, um, the, the psychologists were reading the zoology journals, the zoologists were reading the psychology journals. And that, was, that didn't happen a whole lot up until really the early 80s. The, the thing that, and this it's funny that I have to say this, and I have to say it less and less as years go by, each sort of side has to recognize the other people have valid points. So in other words, the people who study mechanism, typically psychologists, have to understand that the, the, the study of, of function is cool. The people who study function have to understand that the study of mechanism is cool. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff here. Anybody who's interested in foraging, doing that for their paper, uh, you wouldn't want to just say you do foraging. It's a little big. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in food finding behavior that's really fascinating. Uh, and uh, if you are interested in that, uh, 
we can talk about that, and I need to point you in some directions. Questions? That was quick. <laughs> it was quicker than I thought. <laughs> well, it was. It was quicker than I expected it to be. Then again, we were supposed to have presentations that didn't have them, so it'll all work out. All right? Okay.
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures in Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time.